Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August the 10th, 2015, and this is episode 1621 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good one for you today because it's Monday. That means this show is all about you. you this, is, this is your show, guys, because you're the ones that write the entire outline of this show by sending me emails every week to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. So if you don't think we cover something sufficiently, get into the act and participate in sending in requests, questions, etc. for these shows. Uh, the, the email address to send those to is jack at the survivalpodcast.com. The formula, and it is a formula you need to follow if you want a good shot of getting on the air. Uh, in the subject line, make sure the, the, the initials TSPC are present, like they're one word, TSPC, for the Survival Podcast. That helps me pull things out of places they go to and filters they end up in that they're not supposed to. And I run a sweep for that at least every other day to every place that they could go to recover lost emails. Next part of the formula. Your question or your point in one sentence is best. Two sentences maximum. Hit to return a couple times. Give me your details. If you do that, you'll be a lot more clear on what you're asking. I'll be able to screen the thing faster and know if it warrants further investigation for inclusion on a show. It's not that I don't want to answer everybody's questions. It's some questions I can't, like, Jack, what should I do with my life? I don't know, man. I'm not Yoda. Or, you know, some other questions occasionally I can't answer. But usually what it comes down to is what haven't we talked about in a while? What haven't we beat to death? What's new? What's interesting? And I need to make this determination, like, in 20 seconds to get through, you know, 200 emails like that. And, and do a little math there, guys. If you, if you ever think I'm nitpicky on this, just do a little math. Let's say you get 200 legitimate emails like this a day. A lot of times they get more. If you do the math in 20 seconds, and obviously I can't scan every email in 20 seconds, and there's a lot of emails other than these. But if you just do that, I spend an hour a day just with the initial just the initial picture view look at these emails. So if you do that, it makes it more likely that I'll see yours and go, ah, that's interesting, that's different. Throw it over here for further review, and it'll get to, to the uh, second pass, so to speak. Anyway, uh, with that, before I get to your emails today, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consult and the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com will help you to complete that final linchpin in the gun operator triangle of efficiency. You know, people often ask me, what is the next gun I should buy? And what I say is maybe you should invest in some training. If you already have a good shotgun, a rifle, a handgun, and maybe a few other things for hunting and sporting purposes, instead of just buying another gun because it's cool or it was on the cover of a magazine, maybe you should invest in that final linchpin, the final moving part in that triangle of efficiency. You know, first you have the gun. You buy a gun off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it does. You can rely on it to be what it is. Ammo is the same way. Good quality ammunition. You can never have too much of it, but you can buy it off the shelf. Those two things are commodities. There's one thing that really requires ongoing investment. That's you, the operator. You're the final moving part. 
A gun and ammo in the hands of somebody who doesn't know what to do can be more dangerous to the people they're trying to defend themselves than it can be a help to the situation. And it's also the case that even if you know how to handle a weapon professionally, you know what you're doing mechanically, there's a mental component when lives are on the line that cannot be condensed down into words. It has to be trained. It has to be drilled into you. You have to realize that if you get into one of these situations, what you'll end up doing is falling back to your lowest, not highest level of proficiency. That's where training kicks in and takes over. The kind of training you'll get from Frank and his cadre at FortressDefense.com. Check them out today. Learn how you can become an efficient operator of that weapon that you're carrying for the defense of yourself and others. Sponsor number two today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Uh, what are you going to get from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason? Shockingly enough, you can get Berkey water filtration systems from Jeff because he is the Berkey guy, the actual one, the only Berkey guy. There's a lot of places you can get a Berkey, but I only know of one Berkey guy, and I only know of one person with Jeff's fanatical dedication to his customers. Absolutely beyond belief how dedicated to customer service Jeff is and to making sure everybody gets uh, what they were expecting, and if there's a problem, it gets corrected fast and properly. Uh, Jeff's been with me as a sponsor for more than five years now. That's kind of unheard of in podcasting. It's really kind of unheard of in conventional radio, if you really think about it, to have sponsors stick with somebody that long. He does a great job for this audience. I, I haven't had any real complaints about him in five years. I had one person mad, but it was well the post office did it, and there's only so much a person can do about the post office. Um, Jeff just takes care of everybody, and he has the, some of the best pricing available because those years of great customer service have made him one of the top distributors for Berkey in the world. So he gets some really great pricing that he passes along to you. He also has a lot of other really great stuff for your prepping needs. You'll find all his Berkey stuff and all his other great stuff, like the Survival Cave line of long-term storable foods, at his website, directive21.com. Again, the website for Jeff, the Berkey guy Gleason, directive, and the number's 21, followed by a dot and a com. Check him out today, and don't be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could deal with the original, the one and only, the true Berkey guy, Jeff, the Berkey guy Gleason. With that knocked out, let's uh, go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode, the year of 1621. That should be tingling the senses for you guys, you know, pilgrims, Indians, stuff like that, little plays you did when you were in school with, you know, big buckles and top hats and everybody was in black and white, yeah. Not a lot of truth to those uh, things, but you'll have to tune into the Thanksgiving special if you haven't ever done so before, the day before Thanksgiving, to learn more about that. Um, but today we're going to talk about something to do with that, and some other things are queued up in TSP Wiki from Alex Shrugged. We have, I am Samo said, do you have any beer? The Pilgrims meet the Prince of Darkness. We have Blood for Nutmeg in New York, the Banda Islands Massacre. We also have the Thirty Years' War, the Eighty Years' War, and the Battle for Fallujah. Those other two are good, but I'm going to read, I am Samo said, do you have any beer? The Pilgrims meet the Prince of Darkness. How can I not read a thing about the Indians meeting, or the Pilgrims meeting the Prince of Darkness? What's up with that? Okay, here we go. The winter death toll has been severe. Of the 102 original men, women, and children to wait ashore last year, only 52 pilgrims remain. The first governor of Plymouth is dead, so Captain Miles Standish takes charge. They can hear the movement of large numbers of Indians in the forest, so security has become a number one priority. Thus, when an Indian comes walking into town, everyone scrambles. He seems not to notice. It's as if he's taking a stroll down the lane on a summer day. A pilgrim blocks his way, and the Indian smiles, holds out his hands, and says in English, Welcome, Englishman. I'm Semmel said. Do you have any beer? 
In fact, they don't have any beer, but they feed him and offer him some strong drink. Later, Samoset returns with another Indian named Squanto, whose tribe once occupied the area. They died of a plague, and the pilgrims can see their bones littering the landscape. Together, the pilgrims and Indians work out a, the first treaty in North, first peace treaty in North America. When a good harvest comes in, the pilgrims offer a Thanksgiving feast to the Lord. The Indians are invited. They have been an integral part of the success of the colony. This Thanksgiving feast is not the first in North America, but it's a notable one. George Washington will declare a day of Thanksgiving in 1789, but Thanksgiving will not become a U.S. national holiday until Abraham Lincoln makes it official in 1863. Let's uh, take a look at my take by Alex Shrugged, who puts these together for us at TSP Wiki. My take by Alex Shrugged. Okay, about Satan. Everything was true as far as I can, I can determine the truth. But there are some serious issues going on behind the scenes. Even though the Indians helped out the pilgrims in the spring, they also let them die in droves the previous winter. They waited because the Indians had recent bad experiences with Englishmen, but after observing the pilgrims, they realized these Englishmen were babes in the woods, clueless. The pilgrims were not quite the fools the Indians thought they were. Nevertheless, Samoset was sent waltzing into town since he had some English skills. Squanto had better English skills, but he was a problem. He took the name of the Indian god of darkness. It would be like a stranger walking up and saying, Hi, I'm the Prince of Darkness, but my friends call me Satan. Would you like to share the blood of an unclean sacrifice with me? I'd say no to that one. Eventually they become aware of Squanto's secondary motives, but you can't tell the kiddies about that stuff, so the story has to be cleaned up over the years. Um, I don't really know how much of that played into what Squanto was trying to accomplish, because it does seem from the historical record that Squanto did help save this colony. That it was uh, he and other natives who taught these people what they needed to know, such as the fact that you can bury fish that are very plentiful in, in the early part of the year called Manhattan and use those as fertilizer to enrich sandy soil and grow maize, or corn as we call it today. So that would be one example of the things that we were pretty sure came from these people. I also would like to kind of point out something about the Indian god of darkness and what that might actually mean. And the, the truth is I don't really know. Um, what it means in this instance, and was this his name from birth? Was this his name of coming of age? Was this his name after an experience I'm about to tell you about that Squanto had? I don't know. I'm not sure. But I will tell you this. It, when you try to compare what somebody means by the uh, the God of Darkness in a Western face, uh, faith, you know, Western European, uh, Middle Eastern faith, like Judaism or Christianity, with what one might mean by a god of darkness and a shamanic faith in the new world, uh, it's not apples to oranges. It's like comparing apples to rocks that aren't shaped like apples. I mean, there's no comparison. In the shamanic faiths of the natives, everything has spirit. You have spirit, I have spirit. The great spirit is the totality. I mean, sh shamanism is called paganism, but in some ways most shamanic faiths are actually more along the lines of monotheistic because everything comes from the single great spirit, the singularity. But then there's these lesser spirits. Maybe they might be seen as deities by some and simply as spirits by others within the faith, and we have a hard time translating those things. But the wolf has a spirit, the deer has a spirit, the stream has a spirit. It's a, it's a, an earth-centric spiritualism where uh, Western faiths have sky gods, gods that live apart from us up in heaven or some other place, whether you go to the, 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 the monotheistic faiths of Judeo-Christendom Judeo and uh, the Islamic Muslim faiths, or if you go into 
longer, older uh, myths of faith, like um, let's say Zeus, right? The 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 gods of uh, the Greeks. Um, these things all represent gods that live apart from us. Shamanic faiths represent gods that are with us, that are earth-based spirits versus sky-based spirits, and. Because everything has spirit, there must be a spirit for everything. And therefore, many of what we would look at and call evil, right? The evil. So Satan, the rebellious one against God, is evil. A god of darkness among the Indians is simply that the darkness itself must also have a spirit. It does not mean that it's inherently evil. Now, this is I'm going longer with the most history segments, but let me give you a little lesson on Squanto. And who this hat was. And by the way, his life expectancy from this point forward isn't very much. He was killed just a little bit over a year later on a guiding uh, expedition, guiding another uh, person, another uh, Englishman, uh, who he was employed as a guide. And I, I don't know the full details of that. I've never really looked into it. But I know that he died, I think, in 1622. So this guy's only around for like another year. Well, before this, why, why did this, this Squanto cat speak such good English? Well, he'd been captured and taken as a slave to Europe were some friendly friars. Yes, friars, as in, you know, kind of like priests. Took pity on him, figured out what was going on, and helped him get away, and eventually made his way to London, and uh, sooner or later was able to return to his homeland, to come back to what we call the New World. Uh, that would be the year 1619, so two years prior to this, um, so he hitched a ride on a boat with a guy you might have heard of, Captain John Smith, the guy that did his best to save the Jamestown colony and put it in, in best order that he could, uh, and also was uh, doing quite a bit in New England at this time. So uh, this Native American got on a British ship, captained by John Smith, sailed back to North America, and was just kind of free to go his way. Went back looking for his people, and you might realize now why they were allowed. To, the pilgrims weren't given a lot of help the first year. Not just that they were concerned, but the Indians had their own problem. They were dying uh, from a plague. It was possibly smallpox, but we're really not sure. So Squanto kind of hooks up with the survivors at this point, which leads me to believe that his interaction with the pilgrims were because, one, he understood the English to a degree, and he knew what was going on there. And he probably hoped to help the remainder of his people survive. Just saying. My take by Jack Spierko. Now, one more thing before we leave today's history segment. I think there's a little bit of current ways to disarm, maybe not disarm, but to reduce tension when confronting someone who's not sure of your intentions here. A little bit of a Bubba version of that, or a little redneck version of that. Let's think about the first interaction, not with Squanto, um, but with his uh, his buddy, Samoset. So Samoset walks down, the pilgrims come out and say, what the hell is going on here? guy runs up to him, stops and blocks his way, and what are you doing here? And the guy just says, you know, hey, welcome Englishman, I'm Samoset, you got any beer? Puts his hand out to shake his hand, you know? And uh, I want you to think about it this way. Let's say you lived up in the country somewhere, and people come into your area at times that you know, and sometimes you don't know, and sometimes people you didn't know are passing through. Sometimes they're just looking to see what's going on out there, and sometimes they're they're out for you know causing trouble. 
One day you look down your road and you see this old boy just come walking up the road completely by himself. Just does not look like he belongs where you are. He comes walking down the road. You come out with your security, security protocols in place to meet him. Say, what are you doing here? And he goes, hey, man, y'all got any beer? You would probably ratchet down the security just a little bit. You might still be concerned that something else might be going on. But that approach seemed to work then. And somehow, I think it would work pretty good right now. With that, let's go ahead and uh, get into the main topic of today's show. One more thing before I do, make sure you consider joining the Member Support Brigade if you are not already a member. Uh, if you sign up online at thesurvivalpodcast.com by clicking on Members and going from there, you'll see all the different options for signing up. You can help support the show and the work that we do. And remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you qualify for a discount if you email me before, not after you join. One of the many benefits of being in the Member Support Brigade, if you want to come is that member support brigade members get to come to our workshops uh, pretty much any, any of them that want to do because it almost never sells out in the first day or two and when I open up the workshops for registration I always open it up to member support brigade members first so I do have two workshops coming uh, again for those of you that are interested they are not yet available. You cannot register for them yet. They are not available to register for first. I will announce the dates that you can register at least a week before they open. I'll probably do that next week. But the dates are September 30th through October 4th and November 11th through 15th. So there'll be plenty of time to make travel arrangements, etc. Um, and I just wanted to let you guys know that they are not available yet. Some of you somehow have found the fall workshop for last year. I've gotten about six emails. Is it closed? Why can't I register? Because it's last year. It's 2014 if you look at the blog post. You can't register for the 2014 event because that was a year ago. All right, so hang tight. I will have full details coming, but just real quick, these workshops that are coming, here's some of the stuff we're going to be covering. Dry canning, Uh, how we run our duck business, the actual business side of it, greenhouse construction and setup, uh, bees. We'll have classes for bees at both of them. Uh, Michael Jordan at one and my bee mentor Jason at the other. Uh, finance, John Pugliano is coming to both of these and we'll be doing two one-hour presentations, like a two-parter on finance and investing and, 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 and protecting your wealth. Uh, fermented foods, microgreens, we'll be doing some berm construction, some awesome self-watering container gardens, uh, we'll be doing worm farms, uh, we're gonna be doing just a ton of stuff. The second one we're gonna have, uh, quail raising, quail processing, Uh, we're going to have uh, greenhouse stuff going on at that one, too, because John Dowie looks like he's coming to both of them now. Uh, we're going to have a microgreens class at both of them. It's going to be awesome. You guys are really going to enjoy this one. And for those of you who have been before, uh, just a reminder, you know, with these subjects, we're covering most of the things we're covering we have not done previously. And the second one, we might be doing something really kick-ass when it comes to uh, dinner one night with all those quail. Uh, details on that we will hold back on in case it doesn't work out. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into your first question for today's show. So this first one comes to me from a guy named Justin. Justin actually sends me a lot of stuff. I found this one interesting. We won't be long on it, but it's just, it's part of pattern recognition is what it is. People ask why I spend so much time on permaculture. Because it's a design science, and because when you understand design science, you can design anything effectively, and you can deconstruct anybody else's design and understand what's really going on. 
So you wouldn't think this is about permaculture because it's about a parenting class. But it's pattern recognition that let Justin immediately see this for what it was. Story for Jack. My wife and I just finished a parenting class for young children. It was misrepresented as being independent when we paid for it, but it was actually sponsored by the state. Gee, the government lied? No, they never do that. Um, one of the suggestions they had to control your kids is to give them a choice between two things that you want to move them in the right direction, i.e., do you want to wear the koala shirt or the monkey shirt when we go to music class? They think they have a choice when everything is really predetermined. I burst out laughing, thinking, of course, the state thinks it's a good way to control people. They've been doing it for 200 years. With the upcoming election starting, it seems like an apt analogy of what they think of us. Oh, my. Is that not exactly what we get every day in this country where we're told we have unlimited choices? Coke or Pepsi? Silver or gold, rich or poor, the dichotomy uh, represents a false choice is another way to see this. But you will definitely see that in this coming presidential election. You'll be presented with two candidates who really have about a hill of beans of difference between the two of them. And what mantra will they tell you on talk radio and on both sides? This is not just what right-wing talking heads do. The left wing does this too. This is the most important election in the history of the United States. Sure it is. Sure it is. And your vote counts. The check's in the mail. Come on, guys. Recognize the pattern. In fact, I would like to implore all of you to watch a simple video uh, sometime today. I'll have in the show notes for you. It's called The Jones Plantation, and it's by a guy named Larkin Rose, and it's about 12 minutes long. Uh, it's too long that I'm not going to play it for you on the air, but it is a YouTube video, and it's kind of done in a hand-drawn animation. Uh, but if you want to see this pattern recognition as it would have applied to slavery in the past and how it applies to the slavery of today, take a look at it. The more you know, the more you recognize. Let's go ahead and take another one. And remember, The Jones Plantation, you'll be able to see it, Uh, by going to the show notes for episode 1621, you'll see it in the resources list. Let's go ahead and take a permaculture question. This is uh, this is this question is for Jack or Ben Falk. Can you explain zones to me? I'm a relatively new listener and hear often mention of the term zones. Sometimes I feel it's used to describe a geographic location te or, or temperature. Other times uh, a location on the property in relation to residence. I live in Michigan with four distinctive seasons, very cold winters. My family is currently looking for our homestead property and would really like to understand the steps and info best for us. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, I, I, I fear sometimes that we take the, uh, the vocabulary of conversation here as though everybody's been listening since the beginning and they haven't. And there's a lot of foundational knowledge sometimes that maybe I need to back up and redo. And maybe we should do... I already have this week's agenda plan, so maybe next week a show on permaculture basics, zones and and uh, layers and just basic design components. But there's a reason you're confused about zones. It, it, it's because you're absolutely right. It can mean either or, and it depends on what we're talking about. We're talking about general zones that that the most people that are involved with gardening and planting and stuff are familiar with. It's USDA zones. Like I live in Zone Seven B. 
right? Which means they can't make up their mind anymore. Is it really 7 or 8? So we'll make some intermediate gradients, 7B. Um, my zone is really 8 one year and 7 the next. And those kinds of zones are not based on anything but your total days uh, of cold weather and your lowest temperatures during that cold weather. That's, that's really what comes out of your lowest temperatures during that. How cold does it get where you are? Which leaves a lot to be desired, honestly, because Seattle, Washington is zone 8, and I'm zone 8, depending, right? But it gets a hell of a lot colder here for a hell of a lot longer than it does in Seattle, believe it or not. My winter is actually far more continental, because I'm further from the ocean, and far more harsh than Seattle winters. It's also the case that my summers are a hell of a lot hotter. So just looking at the number alone for that zone doesn't tell you everything you need to know. What it does tell you is, will cold kill what you're planting? So in other words, if you have a tree that's hardy to zone 4, right? So you, you, you know this tree is hardy to USDA zone 4 and you're in 5, the winter won't kill your tree. Assuming it's established. I mean, if you plant it 5 days before your first deep frost, who knows, right? But in general, an established plant that's hardy to zone 4 won't die in zone 5. Got it? That's it. That's the whole thing. How cold does it get? Good piece of information to know when you're selecting plantings for your property and other things like that. Permaculture zones are entirely different. Entirely different. They are a design constant. Okay. So what I mean by that is if I give you a piece of land and you just live there, if you just live there, you don't even think about what you're doing, you're still going to establish zones. You're just not going to know they're there, so you're not going to be able to utilize the fact that they're there. All right, let me explain what I mean. You're going to get up every day. Let's say you still have a job and you have your little house and you have an acre or two of land. And you have a garage and you have a mailbox out by the, uh, by the, the street side where they put your mail. A little sidewalk coming out, maybe a little lollipop tree in the front yard like everybody in suburbia has. Okay. And then you have a back porch, you have a grill back there, you have a, a chair to sit in, maybe you have a, a, you know, stuff like that going on. There is going to be a zone zero. Zone zero is pretty much inside your house. You live there. You're there all the time. You probably spend more time there than any place else if you're like most Americans and very sedentary, but it's where you live. So you're going to design your zone zero around your personal comfort and flow. This is your kitchen, your mudroom, all this other stuff. Zone zero. doesn't get talked about enough in permaculture, by the way. Because this is things like the installation of your house, you know, your energy efficiency, uh, the, the beauty of your home, the lighting in your home, the seating arrangements, how you take care of it. All of that is zone zero. That's, that's your domicile. Just outside of your house... And then extending in little peninsulas, this is like everybody shows zones in permaculture workshops and PDCs and all. It's like this, this series of circles, like a bullseye. They never work out that way. It's just a, that's just a representation to help you with their head around it. I think it does more harm than good. But right around your house, like a peninsula would be your mailbox. No matter what happens in your front yard, six days a week you probably go out to that mailbox. It makes this little path. That's a little peninsula. Zone one is where you pretty much are going to spend some time every day, okay? Every single day of your life, you're going to step foot in zone one. Okay, now, if you look at an area that maybe you're on once or twice a week, naturally by flow or design, you got zone two. When you look at a place that you're at maybe a couple, three, four times a month, you got a zone three. 
Okay. Now you look at a place that you maybe are on naturally. You might choose to go there, but naturally your behavior is going to take you into that space, you know, once a month. This is zone four. Okay. And then you got a space that the only time you're going to go there is when you go there just to reflect and walk and it's wilderness and that's zone five. Okay. Those are your permaculture zones. And the reason it's important is if you have something that needs a lot of maintenance, like a vegetable garden, it doesn't belong in zone three. It belongs in a place that you go to every day because you'll walk out there and you go, oh, those carrots are looking pretty good. I'm going to pull a few of those for dinner tonight. Look at that weed. Look at that weed. Look at that weed. Okay, and it's taken care of. If you do what most people do with a vegetable garden, is a perfect example of this, and put it way out back, you end up with a weed mess. That's what you're going to, you're going to end up with a massive amount of weeds. You're not going to take care of it. You're going to have fruit and vegetables rotting on the vine, overabundance of pests. You're not going to see them in time to take action. So you want that to be right where you are going to spend your time anyway, where you can see it from a window. If you have an herb garden, well, one of the best uses for herbs is fresh in your cooking. So if you're getting ready to cook, and your herb garden is way hither and yonder out back by the food forest, and you want some fresh oregano for what you're cooking, and there's oregano out there, or fresh basil for you, and there's basil out there, you're far more likely to say the hell with it and just use the dried stuff out of the spice cabinet. But if all you do is pop out the door a couple feet, snip, 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 and grab that fresh herb and bring it in, you're going to cook with it more. So you're going to get used more, and it's going to get maintained better. So that's a zone one. Then, as you move into homesteading, you start to see zone ones get wonky and weird shape. So we have uh, as close to the house as we want it to be, and it was already there, so we weren't going to move it. A great big uh, uh, 12 by 16 shed that functions as our poultry house for our ducks with a surrounded area. Even though it's a bit further than most people would consider for a zone one, we have to go there multiple times a day. Zone one is not only something you're at every day, but probably multiple times a day. We have to, at minimum, go out in the morning to let them out, clean up their water, all that stuff, and in the evening to put them in bed, make sure they're fed for the night. And usually it's three visits. So we're going we're gonna to walk from the back door out to that shed. So even though that's a much bigger area than Zone 1 would normally be, this little peninsula that goes out there, like the one that goes to your mailbox, is a path. We should have, by now, and we haven't, designed things that can be maintained along the way between here and there for that. Now, every design is different. Every goal is different. There's things I would love to do here that don't make sense with ducks, Okay, that would have a lot to do with zoning. Because a duck will ruin water if it's a small body of water. They'll just poop it up. So, for instance, I have places where I do irrigation. Where there's natural depressions in the ground. It would be real easy to dig out a four-foot-by-six-foot hole, get some straight bentonite cat litter, right? Use it to make a bentonite liner, dirt cheap, pound it down by hand, and, and, and dress it up and make a beautiful little frog pond. And the sprinkling during the dry season would keep it filled. And we could do some things like pitch a mosquito dunk in there, throw some guppies in there, put some shade over it, and it would be a great little water feature for frogs. Of course, the ducks would turn it into a cesspool. So I won't do that, but somebody else might. And how much maintenance that needs depends on where it goes. So that's what we have to start thinking about with our zone design is how often we frequent an area. And then when we have to make a decision like, oh, I don't want this structure so close to my home. 
but I'm going to go, have to go there every day. Then I can think a little bit more about the path. Which pathway makes the most sense for me to design things to be doing along that path into it? So since I have to go out there three times a day, then I put my vegetable garden right along that path. Right? And maybe I put um, some perennial gardens right along that path. And if I'm going to a chicken coop, chickens are a lot more likely to want to eat weeds and stuff than uh, ducks are. So if I have a chicken coop in that situation, every time I go out in the morning to, to let my birds out, to feed them, to take care of them, whatever, I pull the weeds on the way out, throw them in a bucket. I get out to the birds, I throw the, the, the weeds to the birds out of the bucket, and by the way, now I just take the eggs, put them in the bucket, and go home. See, this is smart design, and that's what zones are about. Those of you not into permaculture, you can design an office this way. You can design a business based on these zones. If you have an employee that has to perform a certain function that's not right at their desk, then it makes sense to position that person so that they can take advantage of their, their, their desk position in accessing a common utility, let's say. Right? Or someone who's a little bit too breaky, break, break, you know, likes to take breaks all the time. Maybe you put them as far away from possible from, from the break room. That's not your zone one, dude. Right? You don't visit that multiple times a day. You're out over here in the forest. You got work to do. Cut some trees down, metaphorically speaking. Right? So you can apply this type of thinking to any design. You could apply this to, I mean, trust me, UPS, FedEx, etc. Don't think they don't apply this. It's not exactly the same, but it's this type of methodology and thinking to delivery routes. All right, so hopefully that helps you out. They are two distinctive different things. Let's take another one. Uh, this comes from someone we'll just call Sam for the purpose of this because he doesn't want his name given away. Um, the home loans are getting to where they were before the pop. Don't mention my name on this one, but I just closed on a home. When applying for the loan, they asked how much down. I said anywhere from 5 to 20%, depending on the PMI. They gave me an 80, 15, 5, $430,000 loan with no PMI. Not like I'm going to argue with keeping cash on hand, but aren't these the practices that caused the problem last time? Sam. Okay, Sam, which isn't your real name. Uh, yes and no. Okay, so here's the question. How many people with really good credit, were actually the cause of the housing meltdown, specifically the initial parts of it? And the answer is, not many. Most of the mortgages that went into default, especially in the first half of this, were subprime loans. Yes, many of them were structured 80-20, 80-15-5, and I'll explain what that means in a second, but it, it was more about the creditworthiness of the people that got the loans. Having money to put down doesn't mean that you always should put the money down. Once I put the money down, it's not tied into the equity of the house. That's good for the lender, and it might be good for me if I ever need to vacate the property because I have less owed on the property, and therefore uh, I, can, I can more likely sell the house for at least what I owe on it. But on the other hand, I don't have that money. It's now in the house. If I take the money because I have it, Right? I don't have to borrow that too. That's totally different. Like, get the house for no money down and then borrow money to improve it. If I actually take the money and improve the house, I can probably, if I'm smart about improvements, put more value in the house than I could have by, by buying down the loan, so to speak. So, it's not necessarily these types of loans in of themselves, but who the money's being loaned to under what circumstances. Now, I know who Sam is, even though his name's not Sam. 
And Sam is a person of some means. Sam can service this loan. Sam has money. Uh, Sam has great credit. So if anybody would qualify for a loan like this, it would be Sam. It does break the spirit of why PMI exists, though. PMI exists to protect the lender because if you default, they have some portion of the loan covered with insurance. You're buying insurance for them. That, that's how this works. The reason that when you have a 20% equity in the home, the lender cannot force you to do PMI anymore is there's enough equity there to provide that same level of insurance. You're basically buying, so you buy a $100,000 house, you pay a PMI, a primary mortgage insurance on that. Um, what you're doing is you're insuring $20,000 of the value of the loan for the lender. They're, they're, they know they're at least good for that. That helps them liquidate the property for the 80. That's how it's supposed to work. Now what's supposed to happen is when you've acquired enough equity, through appreciation, improvements, etc., they're supposed to drop that. 90% of people eligible to get PMI dropped never do what it takes to get it done. It's a money trap. It's a money sink. It's a money game. It's, it's an extortion of people's money that seldom actually prevents any kind of a meltdown like it's supposed to. Okay, But the spirit is that. So what happens here is if two other lenders will take the smaller part of the loan, The primary lender on the 80 is hedging and saying, I'll still let that go because I can't do anything about it because we didn't quite write this regulation to close this loophole. But I'm also assuming this. I come first in line. So let's say Bank A gives me 80%, and we'll make this an easy one in 80-20, and Bank B gives me 20%. And there's that's the difference. Okay, That's what this means. 80-15-5 means that Bank A gave Sam 80% of the money. Bank B gave him 15% of the money, and Bank C gave him 5% of the money. Bank A saying, if this house goes into foreclosure, I'm first in line. I'm owed the most money. Okay. Bank B is saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to give you a 15% loan, but you don't get 30 years, and you're going to pay me a bit more interest. All right. So you might have a, a 10- or 15-year loan on the 15%. And the 5% bank says, I need my money back quick. You're going to pay me more interest, and you're going to pay me back in five years. So you, they have three different different amateurization schedules in each one. So what Bank B is figuring is, I'll have enough of my money back, and I'm getting more interest, so it's worth the additional risk, and this is a credit-worthy person, etc. Bank C's thinking, as long as this guy makes it five years, I'm good. And again, Bank A's thinking... I get to go first if we have to, you know, foreclose on this guy. So that's the, that's the theory there. But yeah, I'll tell you what what got us into this mess was using these loans to get houses for people that could not afford them. These are tools. These are fine. See, that's the thing. It's like you got to look at all these different loans like a gun, okay? Like a gun. So, you know, somebody gets shot in a theater, we blame the gun. No. You don't blame the gun. The gun's a tool. The same gun in the hands of somebody else could have saved a life by preventing a, a crime. Okay? So the tool is, is inert. It is what it is. It's the policy of the tool's application that changes whether it's a positive or a negative result. So taking a person like Sam, who's creditworthy, is a person of means, and is simply 
avoids the penalty of PMI, because PMI is basically a penalty. You're paying more for the money, right? By, by diversifying the places that the money is supplied from, probably makes sense for Sam. How, how loose will they get with this is the question. When I bought this house, um, what would it be now? Almost three years ago. But definitely three years ago that I was filling out paperwork for a mortgage. It was more headache to buy this house than any other house I've ever bought. Now, I want you to think about, it. well, yeah, you know, the mortgage. But think about this. By this time, this had been the sixth property I had purchased, sixth piece of real property I had purchased. I had almost perfect credit. Way more income than necessary for the value of the loan. Yes, self-employment, but four consecutive years of self-employment, even though they only asked for two years of tax returns. Okay? Solid income. Able to explain everything. I had to write letters to explain discrepancies, and I had to write letters to explain the letters that explain the discrepancies. I had to write letters to document why I had mail sent to two different places. I mean, it was an utter freaking nightmare. An utter nightmare to buy this house three years ago. So the question is now, how much looser have they gotten? Because the structure itself isn't the problem. It's the application of the lending tool. A good friend of mine is a, is a dude named Kevin Miller. Kevin Miller is the owner of TexasLending.com. He was kind of attacked back during the meltdown a little bit by people that don't know what the hell they're talking about because they said, you know, Kevin would give a person one of these bad loans. Well, Kevin told me, this is back when he was my client, he said, look, Jack, let me explain something to you. If we have a person in front of one of our loan representatives, one of our people, and there is any loan that they qualify for, and we do not tell them that they qualify for that loan, or it can be proven that we didn't look hard enough to find what they qualified for, my entire business is at jeopardy because I'm in violation of federal law. I am required by federal law to put anything that a person applying for a loan qualifies for in front of them as a mortgage broker. I cannot say, I'm not going to show you this loan because I think this is a terrible idea and I don't think you can pay it. I have to show them the loan. This is what got us into this trouble. This mindset that everybody that wants a loan is entitled to one. That's, that's the problem. And then all of these financial tools get applied to make that goal happen, to say yes to everybody. Uh, and you can thank Bill Clinton and George Bush for it, both of them, seriously. In fact, you can thank Bush Sr., Bill Clinton, and George Jr. for this whole mess because they one did and the other did more and the other did more, and it was all their goal to, to make the highest level of homeowners in America. Well, you're not a homeowner, you're a mortgage owner. Let's go ahead and take another one. The next one is kind of a uh, tool maintenance question. Uh, this one comes from Glenn. Glenn says, I recently purchased a good splitting axe and hatchet after most frustration with cheaper ones. I would like to take care of the steel heads and hickory handles. I've heard you mention to use linseed oil before to keep wooden tool handles in good shape and also warn of a possibility of fire. I have read that linseed oil is slow to dry and can mildew. Anti-mildew agents are often added to counter this. Is there any alternative to linseed oil for keeping rust off axe heads and wooden handles from rot. 
Is there a reason to use linseed oil over modern preservatives? Overall, I'm just looking to take good care of my tools, and the risk of fire with linseed oil bothers me. Thank you. Let's start with the risk of fire from linseed oil. Rubbing your tool handles down with linseed oil represents no fire danger whatsoever as far as the tool's concerned. The rag with which you've rubbed down the tool is the concern. And this is a concern not with just linseed oil, but any oil. And it requires the proper disposal of rags and keeping them in an oxygen-deprived state until you get rid of them or burn them or what have you. Normally what I do is I just take and I keep rag, uh, uh, rags for wiping down tool handles in a Ziploc bag inside an ammo can. And if it wants to burn in there, it can burn in there. It ain't going to burn for very long. I mean, that's it. I keep uh, some, some rags in an ammo can and you're good. You're just not going to have the problem in there. Um, the one I, I've always heard it can happen. The one time I saw it happen, I did some stuff with some linseed oil on a rag, and I just kind of sent the linseed oil. It was either on a fence post or side of a pool or something like that, and it was in direct sunlight. And son of a gun, if like 15 minutes later, the thing wasn't just burned up. It, it didn't ever burst into flame, but it burned like a low smoldering burn. Uh, which did concern me, and it made it real for me. Because, I mean, this goes all the way back to shop class. Anybody that ever took shop class as a kid in high school knows that oily rags have a metal can that all oily rags go into, and that's where they stay. They don't ever get left out, and they don't get put in the garbage can. Right? So that's the fire risk from linseed oil and other oils, by the way. Now, it's not like linseed oil is the only thing that will do this. Um, when I was... Uh, a kid, and I used, to, I used to talk about how I used to always be, the, you know, get the privilege of cleaning the guns. And the one thing I could always do if I wanted to is take the guns out of the cabinet and wipe them down with a, a lightly oiled rag. We just had a glass jar with a little bit of gun oil on the, the rag, and the, the, the rag lived in that jar. Never had a problem. Years and years and years and years. Same rag. Never a problem. So it's about making sure you're not exposed to oxygen, heat, sun, and you're golden. Um... The application usage, when it comes, and this is, again, if you use a rag with oil on it, it needs to be handled as though it can combust, including what I'm about to say. I put on my tools when I get around to doing it, because a lot of times I don't, sadly, WD-40 on the metal parts. For shovels and hoes and picks and axes, I haven't found, you can get tool oil if you want to or whatever, but... Because it's just so convenient with the spray can and a little wipe down and done, right? So I don't use linseed oil on the metal. If you put linseed oil on metal, it tends to get kind of sticky. You're talking about this like slow dry thing going on. So I don't use it for that. I use WD-40 for that. Now, what I use linseed oil for is wooden handles, specifically untreated wooden handles, non-lacquered wooden handles. So... A lot of times you'll see this. Somebody goes out, buys himself a new shovel, pick, axe, whatever, with a wooden handle. Comes home. Uh, heard on a podcast or something like that. Linseed oil is good for protecting wood. Wipes down that nicely shellacked handle with linseed oil. And sets it out to dry in the sun. And you can set wooden tools wiped down in the sun. They're not going to burst into flames. Doesn't work that way. And uh, sets it out. Comes back like... Four or five hours later, picks it up and it's like sticky and gooey and gross and it won't dry. What's going on? Okay. You put it on top of shellac. Wood can't take it up. So, 
If you want to use wood, I mean linseed oil to protect the wood of your tools, you have a couple choices. One is you buy tools with wooden handles that are good quality wooden handles that are not shellacked. That's one option. The other is to remove the shellac. There's two ways to do this. There's the easy way that's not exactly environmentally friendly but doesn't take that much of it anyway and is not that big a deal. And there's the more environmentally friendly way that's a lot more work. The easy way is you spray Easy Off Oven Cleaner on the wood and strip off the shellac with Easy Off Oven Cleaner. You spray it on there, you leave it sit for a little bit, and you hose it off with a garden hose, and most of the shellac just comes right off. I learned that from restoring military surplus rifles. And uh, there's a great website called surplusrifle.com where they'll tell you everything you want to know and more about using Easy Off Oven Cleaner on wood. But Easy Off will usually strip the, the, the varnish, shellac, whatever you want to call it, right off a tool handle if you want to do it. Again, if you want to do it. There's also varnish and shellac removers that you can use. I haven't found that any of them are any less caustic or environmentally harmful than Easy Off, though. And Easy Off is an off-the-shelf product from the supermarket that has other uses it can be used for, where if you go get like a varnish or shellac remover, it may not have many other uses at all. You may have, uh, end up having it around for a very long time, not really want it there. The more work way is to get out sandpaper and sand off the finish. All of this just so you can protect the handle that's already protected. So what I tend to do is just use the tool and make sure I take care of the metallic part of it. And usually the place you want to make sure you get oil onto the wood is like down in the handle, the end grain will be exposed, places like that, and eventually... Well, shellac will wear off. As that wears off, I'll begin using linseed oil on the tool. So, <laughs> this is where it gets interesting. You can bypass all this sometimes by going to, you know, things like uh, pawn shops and antique fairs and uh, garage sales and swap meets. Look for good quality tools where the wood is in good shape. It's just no longer protected. Pick that tool up out of song and dance, rub it down with linseed oil, and you will be happy with the result. I do all this, and I talk about all this for one reason. Wood treated with linseed oil is just beautiful. It lasts forever. Um, you don't have to make it beautiful like a piece of furniture. That's not what I'm talking about. Though you can mix in stains with it and make it look pretty cool while you treat it and stain it at the same time. Um, it is the best thing I've found for maintaining wood. But you can't put it on untreated wood, and it doesn't really belong going on to metals. It's not that you can't do it. There's just better products for it. If you've ever worked with WD-40, you know, if you have a little bit of surface rust, a little bit of WD-40, a little bit of uh, steel wool, and then a little bit more in a wipe down, and it not only protects, but it also removes a lot of the surface rust that's there. Uh, even just a good coating of it and just let it sit, and a lot of that rust will be gone the next time you use it. So I just use different tools for different jobs. Um, again, I like to try to find tools when I'm buying wood-handled tools that are untreated when I buy them, that don't have a layer of varnish or slack on them, so that they're designed to be maintained. Another thing you can use that works really well for the same application, but again, it has to be untreated wood. It can be stained. It cannot be sealed, and that is deer tallow. Rendered deer tallow is fabulous for preserving wood which might lead you to believe you could do it with lard. And the answer is, you can. Lard is actually a pretty good implement for the preservation of wood. 
All you're doing with wood is preventing it from drying out. When wood dries out and then rehydrates and dries out and rehydrates, we take something that can last 100 years and it might last two or three or four or one. You never know, just depending on how bad it gets. Also, as that wood dries out and then rehydrates and dries out and rehydrates, it swells and shrinks and swells and shrinks, and all of a sudden your heads become loose and things like that. That's how that happens. By keeping the wood at a constant moisture state and sealed in with oil, we prevent that from happening. The reason varnishes and slacks are not great for that is they form this hard coating that begins to flake off over time, and the wood has different places where it's exposed and not exposed at the same time. Moisture gets into the wood from areas where it's exposed and then gets trapped under the varnish layer at areas where it's not yet. I don't like varnish on my shovels, picks, etc. I like an oil finish, and I prefer linseed oil. Though the truth is, just about any quality oil will do a good job for you. I just find linseed oil, boiled linseed oil, to be the best option. Let's take another one. Uh, next question, a uh, vehicle prep question from Dwayne. Since you've mentioned a few times in the past about having an air compressor in your vehicle, do you have a make and model that you're using and satisfied with? A friend of mine had a low tire the other day, and neither of us had a compressor. So I'm ordering from Amazon soon and wanted to add a compressor to my order. Thanks. Uh, I do, you may not like the price, but I'll tell you why it's what I carry. If I need to put air in a tire, there's a good chance it's my truck, which is where I keep my air compressor most of the time. My truck has great, big, giant redneck tires, about as big as on a small Class C RV or bigger. So I actually carry an air compressor that is designed with RVs in mind, designed to fill up really big tires at higher pressures than you would expect from, let's say, a passenger car. Um, and higher volumes, and a lot of the smaller consumer-grade air compressors, even when filling up a large car tire, overheat and crap out while trying to fill them up. This price was a little hard for me to swallow, too, because it's 245 bucks gulp. Yes, but it is a workhorse of a compressor. This thing would shoot nails. I am extremely pleased with it except for one thing. Except for one thing. And uh, I can probably fix that thing by doing some custom fittings and stuff myself. Let's talk about what's great about it. It is a 12-volt air compressor. It is designed to clip onto the terminal batteries under the hood of your vehicle. This means it can operate at higher wattage levels than something designed to plug into a cigarette lighter. And that is great because that means it can run at higher pressures faster with a higher reserve tank. It has a maximum pressure rating of 150 PSI. I've never tried to determine whether or not you could actually get there with it, but every tire I know would probably be ready to blow off the rim if had not already done so if pushed up to 150 PSI. Even my great big honking redneck tires don't get anywhere near 150 PSI. So it has horsepower, and it can run for long periods of time necessary to fill up larger uh, larger tires uh, than your consumer models. I mean, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Harbor Freight makes a little bitty metal one. looks like a little miniature version of this thing. I think they're like 30 or 40 bucks, and they're fine. They're fine if you need to get enough air in your tire to just get it off the road, get it to the next exit, whatever. But getting it up to actual pressure, even with a car tire, these things are underpowered. They really are. Um, whereas this product works, and I don't like things that rely on 
that are required to rely on a cigarette lighter. Cigarette lighter, you know, 12-volt plug things that are inside your vehicles have a tendency to get screwed up. You have a fuse blown, don't know it. Now you're trying to plug an air compressor in, it doesn't work. Clipping to your battery terminals, as long as the battery has power, always, always, always works. So this thing to me, and has saved my butt enough times, and helped me save other people's butts enough times, uh, that I absolutely am happy with it, and it was worth the 200 bucks, 245 bucks to be exact. It is on Prime, so it does ship free. Okay, what I don't like about it. What I liked about it initially is it comes with this coiled-up yellow hose that's designed for RV people. So as you might imagine, getting around at even a, a full king cab, eight-foot bed, F-350, and being able to reach every tire, no problem, no problem, no problem. I can get to any tire and air it up. It came with this great little extension. Little thing clips on the tire, built-in gauge, and a little... Um, Trigger-based, you pull the trigger, the air goes, let go, it stops. And you can set your tire pressure and everything with it. Work great. Love the little piece that clips on the end. Two quick releases. One goes to the compressor, one goes to this little trigger device. And life is good. About two years into it. Pulled it out one day. My son left his car sit in my front yard after he bought his new car forever. So I'm going to put some air in his flat-ass tire so I can move his car the hell out of my yard. Hook it up. Turn it on. And it usually runs for a few seconds and shuts off as soon as the, the reserve tank, which is pretty small, gets up the pressure. And then when you you start shooting the air in, the little compressor motor starts running again. Well, it just keeps running and running and running and running. What the hell is going on? And it won't build up any air pressure. I shut it off and I start looking at it. Immediately, I think, mechanic days, uh, the hose is probably bad. Find a crack, a hole in this plastic hose. And it's... You know, at that point, I really start to take a look at the plastic and think this is the kind of thing. If it gets cold and hot, cold and hot, it's going to find fractures. So I go online to buy a new hose. The hose that comes with it, I can't find anywhere. I find a much heavier duty black hose, but it only has a quick release on the side that goes onto the air compressor, and permanently attached to the other side is an inflator deflator with no button. Huh? So what you do with this thing, if you want to take air out of the tire, you turn it a certain way, clip it on it, lets air come back out. You disconnect it, turn it the other way, and it's designed to put air in. So you attach it to your tire now, okay, and nothing happens. You turn the compressor on, it starts filling up the tire, and to, and to stop filling up the tire, you turn the compressor off, and then you can look at the pressure gauge. So what I need to do is some custom fitting work to get the old end, which is made of a good quality rubber, onto the new hose, which is a very heavy-duty, metal-reinforced, much better hose. But what they really need is a heavy-duty hose like the yellow one made out of the black stuff with the two fittings. And for $245, bucks, I would think they could do that. I just realized they haven't told you what this product is called. It's Viair, V-I-A-I-R. 450p. And I have to say that if you kept it indoors, the life of that yellow hose would probably be a lot longer, but that kind of defeats the purpose of having it in your vehicle in the first place. It's a hard pill to swallow, though. I, it really is a hard pill for me to swallow at $245, bucks, even though I think it's worth it. Here's why. You can get a really nice Porter Cable, 3.5 gallon, 135 PSI, pancake-style air compressor, floor model, uh, for a hundred bucks, which is fine for shooting nails and all kinds of other stuff. Um, 
you can get one with with three different nail guns, kind of a big nail, a smaller nail, and a Brad gun. All three and the compressor together for $249 on Prime shipped to your house. That Porter Cable compressor with those tools is a hell of a lot more flexible and does a hell of a lot more things than a vehicle one. And if you have a big honking toolbox like I do with a Stephen Harris battery bank in it, well, you could fit it in there. And it would work just fine. But it doesn't fit everywhere. Not everybody has a big, giant Stephen Harris battery bank. So I just tell you, if you want the best you can get, this is the one. Again, I'll have a link to the, the product on Amazon. Know this. I don't say these things to make money. I don't even use affiliate code links. Uh, on Amazon. I really don't. I just put these links up for informational purposes uh, so that nobody thinks I'm giving advice just so I can make some affiliate money. Uh, I try to make my advice as neutral as possible. So there you go. It's the Viair 450P. It is the best product I've found with the exception of uh, the, the hose. And you can probably go to Home Depot or something and find a hose to replace that yellow one. I just haven't bothered to do so yet. Uh, because I didn't realize when I bought the black one what I was getting. I thought I was just getting a replacement for the yellow one, which I was happy to do and buy from the manufacturer. But I'll have to look at other options now. Let's take another one. Next, let's take a gardening question, a pretty simple one. It says, Jack, I'm wondering, and this is from Oliver, um, I'm wondering how bad uh, an effect municipal water will have on soil health of my garden and my planter boxes. My landlord's okay to garden expansion project, which I was able to complete this summer, while on a break from teaching. I added planter boxes and another bed for fruit trees, bushes, and veggies. I'm super excited about it. I'm seeing worms near the surface of the compost layer applied. But what about microbes and the damage done by chemicals and city water supplies? Uh, is it worth worrying about or no? Thanks, Jack. Uh, and he has a before and after picture, which, honestly, I should probably, I'll probably put them online in a link in the show notes just so you can see it. He did a really nice job. Um, This might be an example, you know, when you have a landlord says, I don't know, well, it could look like this um, because it looks so much better. And if there's a landlord, if I lose this tenant, I'm pretty stoked about now being able to rent this house out and, and having it so much nicer. To me, this is a lot more rentable uh, than the way that it was before. Um, but let's, okay, so here's the thing with municipal water. Chlorine and chloramine. Chlorine, if you're really concerned, if you put water in a container with an open top, it'll off-gas. And then you can water from that container. And in a garden the size that Oliver has here, you know, a 55-gallon drum uh, set up on some cinder blocks for some basic pressure, and you'd have all the, you know... All, all that you would need to water this garden. If you wanted to make sure that you had, let's say, a week in between waterings, 55 gallons would probably water these gardens pretty well. You could probably even set these tanks up with drip, and you could fill one and then fill the other. Um, you might need a little bit more than that in the summer. It depends on your climate. If you're here, you're going to need a hell of a lot more. In most of the United States, though, I, I think that just looking at these, 50 to 100 gallons a week, you, you, could, you could do this. But it probably isn't worth doing. Not with city water anyway. Because most municipalities are now using chloramine instead of chlorine. Because dagnabbit, this chlorine stuff, you have to keep using it because if you don't, after a certain amount of time, it gets out of the water. It leaves. This chloramine is far more persistent 
It's a derivative of chlorine, from my understanding, and it does the same things, but you can let it sit out there for days and days and days, and it doesn't off-gas. stays in the water, so you ain't going to get rid of it. So, should you worry about this? I say no. I say no. Good soil management practices and use city water when you have to. There are some things that you can do here. You can set up some rain catchment. This is not that big of a garden. Two or three IBCs would, would do it, but you're a renter. So uh, while the landlord was hip with what you did here, he may not be hip with you know three or four IBC tanks sitting out there. But three or four IBC tanks would probably provide you all the rain catchment you need to water this in all but the harshest climates. When it comes to water, if we're going to grade how good it is for the soil and for our gardening, the gold standard is rain. Nothing is better. The next would be well and then be city. But a garden water with city water will do a hell of a lot better than a garden that needs water and doesn't get it. So I wouldn't stress over this, but if there are other options, avail yourself of them. There also may be an opportunity to do some supplemental water uh, watering from basically atmospheric water capture. How can you do atmospheric water capture? That sounds like really complicated stuff. Assuming you live in a climate where it gets hot in the summers and you have this thing called air conditioning, somewhere outside of the home is a place where the moisture from the air conditioning unit drips. If it happens to be high enough in the air that it actually drips down and something can be put under it, that water can be captured. In our instance, the air conditioning unit for one side of our home has a weep valve that's about 10 feet in the air. And it's a little valve that comes out and drips down. And it just sits there, drip, 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 drip. We took one of those like really big wheelie uh, garbage cans. Like I don't know how many gallons, but it's a huge one. Like It stands up to your chest. We put four center blocks there on end so they're lifted high up. I drilled a hole in the bottom of that tank, and I put a hose bib through it with a compression fitting so that it stays sealed and put a hose bib on it. And we cut a hole in the lid, and then I epoxied a piece of hardware cloth over the hole so mosquitoes can't get in there. And then we just set that so the hole was where it was dripping, and it's sitting on the center block. So I think it's 90 gallons or 95 gallons this tank is. That's a lot of water. And in the summer, when I most need to water this little garden that's out in front of the house, that thing fills up a couple times, I wouldn't say a couple times, probably every four or five days it's full. And we just have hose run out to where we want the water to go, and we just go out there and turn the nozzle, and the water runs. Now, is this an um, energy-efficient means of capturing water? The answer is yes and no. It's no because running an air conditioner to, to cool a, a 2,000-square-foot home solely to produce 90 gallons of water a week is dumb. But if you're going to run the air conditioner anyway, and the water is a surplus that naturally occurs, not harvesting it is even dumber. So I've actually had people criticize my little YouTube video about this because they're like, well, that's not a very efficient, that's not very green. Well, I'll tell you what, it's 105 degrees today. I'm going to run my air conditioner. Water is going to come out of that hole, and we capture it. So that's another way you might consider finding out where the drip from your air conditioning unit is and capturing and reusing that water because you don't have to even have a 90-gallon bucket. I mean, you could set up a smaller container and plumb it over to the area you want the water. 
It doesn't necessarily have to even have a, a switch or something. Maybe you switch once a day to let that water into your garden. That water is not good for drinking. It really isn't. Um, all kinds of th you know nasties can grow in there. But in the end, it's atmospheric water. So it's probably not going to hurt your garden whatsoever. We certainly haven't noticed any ill effects of using it in, in the area we're using it in. So um, that's just another thought altogether. But don't stress over city water if it's the only option you have. But if you can do better, do better. This next one comes in from Karim. Karim says, uh, straight off the shitty advice to go to college and buy a house because they never lose value, here comes another gem. Uh, because millennials need more bad advice. So this is on Market Watch. Listen to this. And the picture is a mattress with a whole bunch of dollar bills and $5 bills and $10 bills sticking out from underneath of it. Okay? Millennials are saving... But they're doing it wrong. Published August 9th on Market Watch. Listen to this. Growing up during an economic downturn scared 20-somethings into savings, but they are also too skittish to do much with the money they're stocking away. About 85% of millennials are putting away a portion of their paycheck, according to an online survey of 1,100 Americans conducted by digital ad agency Fractal on behalf of eBay Deals, because that's where you get your data from. Okay, Published Friday. That's a larger share than roughly 80% of their parents and grandparents, slightly older brothers and sisters, the study had found. Young adults' propensity to save is likely the result of coming of age during a Great Recession when they watch the financial crisis clobber their parents, retirement accounts, and struggle themselves to find decent-paying jobs even with college degrees, says Chibuzo Oko, <laughs> a campaign manager who authored the survey at Fractal, a digital marketing agency in Delray Beach, Florida. They're worried, she says, they're just anticipating being out of a job. You want to save as much as you can while you can. There's just one problem, however. That skittish mentality has pushed 20-somethings into keeping their money in the modern equivalent of under the mattress or in checking and savings accounts where it accrues little interest. Instead of investing, said Stephanie O'Connell, the author of The Broken Beautiful Life, a personal finance guide for millennials, just 26% of Americans under 30 are investing in stocks, an April survey from personal finance site Bankrate found. Quote, this is where I think millennials trip themselves up, end quote, says O'Connell. Quote, they're very conservative, end quote, she adds, noting that young adults' fear of the stock market means they're putting their savings in places where the money won't grow enough to keep place with inflation. Instead, O'Connell suggests 20-somethings divide their savings between an emergency fund and in their checking and savings account that's equal to about three to six months worth of expenses, an exchange-traded fund, also known as an ETF, to save for medium-term and retirement accounts. ETFs are mutual funds that track stock market indexes. In other words, never listen to this lady because she's a moron. You don't just tell somebody, oh, go buy ETFs. I mean, somebody should smack this chick in the head. Seriously. My God. It's exactly what Karim said. Like, like, look, millennials need this now. Come on. Let me, not to mention, this information isn't even accurate. Let me read this again. Instead, O'Connell suggests 20-somethings divide their savings between an emergency fund and their checking and savings account. And boy, we're going to talk about that in a second. It's equal to about three to six months' worth of expenses. An exchange-traded fund, also known as an ETF, to save for the medium turn and retirement account. ETFs are mutual funds that track stock market indexes. No, mutual funds are funds that track stock market indexes. 
ETFs are exchange-traded funds that generally leverage specific commodities or sectors and more to the commodity than anything else or currencies. So this person doesn't even know what the hell they're talking about. Anyway, O'Connell recommends that millennials try to put away about 20% of their income each month, though she noted it could be a difficult goal for many young adults who are still paying down their student loans. More than half of 20-somethings are saving just 10% or less of their paychecks, according to the eBay deal survey. Quote, a lot of investment of time and money is still going back into their careers and into being flexible and maintaining their options rather than long-term retirement savings or saving for home down payments, O'Connell says. More than half of millennials have delayed a major life event, such as buying a house, getting married, or having kids. <clears throat> because student loans, a recent bank rate survey found, the weight of the debt and its ripple effects on other areas of their lives may be why one-third of young adults believe they're living below their means, the largest share of any generation, according to the eBay Deals survey. In other words, good for you guys, you young people. Now, if you're not saving money, and you're not people that are putting at least 10% of your income away as a millennial, um, then you don't get my pat on the back. But the rest of you have been, give just this, what this says, is the millennial generation is, is acting a lot like the World War II generation. Save your money. Don't borrow money unless you have to, because you already got tricked into doing it for college. That's the one thing that has you guys in the hole compared to that generation. And don't listen to the establishment tell you it's okay to spend all your money. Save your damn money. Good for you. Stop listening to the people that screwed everything up for you. Because they don't know what they're talking about. That's why they're all dead broke. That's why we have so many people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s right now looking at strategic bankruptcies. We have people maxed out on credit cards. 50 years old, maxed out on their credit cards. A damn shame this country has that, but we do. And we have a hell of a lot more than one or two people doing that. So don't you be like them. Don't you trust the system that created these problems. And that's that's a big thing that I'm hearing about millennials is they don't trust the system anymore, and it's a damn good decision. Don't trust the system. It's designed to screw you and enslave you. I mean, this article speaks right to the heart of what I hate about the financial advisor industry. I mean, there's good people in it, like John Pugliano is an example of a good person. But most so-called financial advisors are nothing but relationship salespeople that honestly could study two or three scripts, memorize them, and do their job for the rest of their life and focus on nothing but relationships. Um, and then they pride themselves on having good relationships with their clients, where basically what they're saying with a relationship is, I make you like me so you'll do what I say even if I'm stupid. Because let's do some examination here. And, and this also is a good one for a lot of you guys because I get a lot of people saying, you know, I have about $5,000. What do I invest it in? You don't invest. If all you have is $5,000 to invest, you're not ready to invest yet. Keep it liquid. Keep it in savings. It, why? Okay. I put my $500 at risk, or $5,000 at risk. If I get a 10% return, I made $500. If I have a 20% loss, I lost $1,000. The upside's not there with that amount of money. The time you could spend to accurately make a good selection of investments to earn a safe 10% return, you probably could have earned two or three thousand dollars extra this year uh, by working extra hours or something like that. Save first. Let's talk about savings. So this pinhead, this O'Connell pinhead, says actually some good advice where you should have ten to uh, three to six months worth of your your expenses and savings. The reality is you'd have three to six months of your income, okay? Because assuming you have a balanced budget, 
that takes you at least that three to six months. If you just have your expenses, well, expenses get variable. So we're going to have to increase that number as well. Keep that in mind. So, But let's just do a little bit of analysis here so we can see how stupid this advice is and why it doesn't generally apply to people in their mid-20s who are just getting started with their careers. So most people right out of college getting started with their careers don't have a lot of money saved up, but they spent most of it in college. First thing they need is a $1,000 emergency fund. That, that's just absolutely first. That's money that's just sitting in an extra checking or savings account. It's just there. That's the car broke down. I need to get the brakes fixed on it, and I'm not going to go into debt for it. Okay, So we get that done. Okay, That money has no business being at risk. Now we have to save three to six months of income. 10% is a pretty lofty goal for someone paying student loan debt off who should be making more than the minimum payments at this stage in their life while they can and deferring other life expenses so they can live better on. But 10% can be done. So 10%. So at 10% of your, your income, how long does it take to save 90 days of it Let's use some basic common core, non-common core math, right? Round number, $40,000 a year after tax income. Let's say that our millennial is taking forty grand home a year. Decent, decent starting job, really, for a lot of these kids. Would kill for that opportunity. Okay, to, to, to save a quarter or 90 days um, in income for that person, we just look at 10%, okay? 10% of $40,000 is $4,000. A quarter of $40,000, right, is, is uh, $10,000, right? Divide 40 by 4, you get 10. 10% is 4. So two and a half years. So for our millennial, saving 10% of their income, And putting 100% of it to that emergency fund, which is the most important base to their investing. They're at two and a half years, assuming no raises before they get there. And if they get a raise and their standard of living goes up a little bit, they may have to backpedal a little bit, a little bit longer to get caught up with their savings because they've only had the new income, let's say, for four months, but they've been saving for two years. Right, So they have to make up that gap. They re You really want to keep your savings at your, your emergency fund, your 90-day or six-month emergency fund, at, based on your income as it goes up. And if your income goes down, then at least hold it where it was. All right? So two and a half years. Now, she says 90 days or six months. Like, it's just like off the cuff, because that's what all the articles that she read getting ready for this interview told her pin-headed pin mind to say. Okay, so if it takes two and a half years to get to 90 days, how long does it take to get to six months? Ding, ding, ding. The answer would be five years. You double that. So if our millennials are 20-something at 25, pretty well off at that point to, to gotten that far, how old will they be when they have six months of their emergency fund saved up? And the answer to that, now when that person gets that done, What do you think my advice would to be to them to do with that money? It would be to keep it liquid. It's an emergency fund. It's money you do not put at risk. You do not put at risk. You do not put at risk. That means our 25-year-old is one day into their 30th year, if everything worked out, nice round numbers on their 20, 21st, 25th birthday, they got this job and started saving their money. They're not a 20-something anymore. Now, we double this... 
We can get it done in a little bit over a year to 90 days at 20%. That's probably what they should be doing. But when you read articles like this, you realize what they're saying. They're, they're talking out of both sides of their face, like financial liars do. You don't like me calling you guys financial liars in the industry? Stop lying. I'll stop calling you that because I've talked to enough of you. You say 90-day emergency fund, and the person has no emergency fund, and you immediately start their investing. And you, you take one little bucket of all the savings, 10% of the 10%, which is 1%, by the way, and you say, okay, this goes into cash. That's to build up your emergency fund. Well, how long is that going to take to get the 90 days? How long is that going to take to get the six months? So the first order of business is put the money in the mattress, so to speak, until you have six months, three to six months of savings. Now, let's say by the time you get that done, you're making 50 grand a year. Take home, right? So you got a $65,000, $70,000 job. And, you're, and some people are out there going, really? 50? Because you've never made 50 in your life. I understand. I'm just saying these are young kids that are busting their ass, saving some money. Maybe they're making that kind of money. They make a $50,000 a year take home. 10% of that's $5,000. If that person is still able to just save 10% of their income at the point that they've, they've put away their 90 days of six months, whatever goal they choose for themselves, that means it's $5,000 a year. Okay? A 10% return on $5,000 is $500. At that point, you should be researching on investment options and just piling that money up. Until you have thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars to invest, it's almost not worth the risk of loss for this insignificant gains. You build up the money and then you invest it. And this is how millionaires next door become wealthy. This is how they become millionaires next door. Because somewhere along the line, you might just decide what was, what was uh, alluded to down here is a good idea. Staying flexible, being able to invest in your career, in a business, what have you. Now, let's, let's look at this. You've got your 90-day emergency fund. You just 90 is enough for you. You've saved up $50,000. It's sitting in cash. You're now 30, 31, 32 years old, somewhere about there. You are so far ahead of most people your age. It's unbelievable. None of your money's in a 401k. None of your money's been subject to any real losses. It didn't keep pace with inflation. Save more, right? Earn 2 or 3 or 4% more a year by busting your hump, taking a second job, contracting, do whatever you can. Keep pace with inflation by saving more. And you have that money sitting there. You've now developed yourself through five to seven years of professional experience. You have a better understanding of your money. You're not going to listen to people tell you stupid shit about your money because you worked for it, you earned it, and when you lose it now it hurts. It's not money you never thought about. You worked hard for it. You've paid off your debt. You've got your money and you've got your buckets with your different monies in it. And now you're thinking, how do I want to invest this? What if at this point you've built up enough of a relationship with people in the world that you think you can make a go of it as an independent contractor or a private business or what have you, or you decide, I don't know, you're having an early midlife crisis and there's money to be made flying helicopters and you want to go fly helicopters for a living. So you want to go to helicopter school. I don't know. Whatever. You have the Now, you're not going to do something stupid with that money. You give a lot of 32-year-olds, you know, $50,000, $80,000 in total, total money, they get stupid with it really, really fast. But if they earned it and saved it and put it away, they don't tend to get very stupid with it. They, can be, they tend to be very conservative with that money, and they think about the returns because this is the truth. A good business 
is worth more than a 401k plan. And by your 30s, if you've worked hard to develop yourself, you're in a perfect position to go into business for yourself. And, ha and I'm not saying you're going to, but having the options, nice, instead of borrowing from your 401k, where your money's been tied up and controlled and is subject to a massive penalty and, and, and tax consequences and maximum oversight and control and maximum potential for the government to change rules. So I think the millennials are doing great. I think this advice is terrible. And I think Karim's right. This is the last thing this generation needs is, is idiots who pro I bet you this woman that wrote this book has a net worth under $50,000. In real assets, I bet she has less than $50,000 cash. You want to bet? Go find her and tell her if she says she has more, I'm going to want her to prove it on paper. Right? Not a house that she owes $290,000 on. It's supposedly worth $300,000 and she claims to have $300,000 in net worth. Oh, no, 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 not that. Not that, right? Not even a $10,000 equity. I want to see proof that this beanhead has $50,000 in cash or cash equivalent assets. Stocks, bonds, mutual funds in her pocket. I bet you this person doesn't have anything. She's known because she wrote a book and managed to get mentioned in an interview because her advice is crap. You young people, save your money. Then you'll have money to invest. Don't invest when you can't afford losses because the gains aren't sufficient. And right now, the stock market, if you're lucky, you'll do 4% gain by the end of this year. Unless you know what you're doing, it's not even a good time to be in the market right now. This market's going nowhere for the next next five months. Nowhere. It, it, it could go down quite a bit, but it ain't going to skyrocket. You ain't going to miss a big gain this year. Put your money in your pocket Pay attention. Start thinking about investing, but save the money. I'm going to let it go because I'm irritated as shit about this. Here's an interesting question from uh, Chris. Chris says, what are the business and or tax benefits of having multiple companies rather than one company with multiple products? Details. I don't know if I'm asking this correctly, but earlier this year you had a couple of guests talk about creating multiple companies on their property. What are the advantages over having just one company? Why have Spirico Poultry, Spirico Nursery, Spirico Pork, etc., and not Spirico Farm with these multiple revenue streams feeding it? Thanks, Jack, Chris in Minnesota. Um, you're not asking the question wrong, but I think you're understanding the issue wrong. So... Let's say my, my farm was much bigger than, than ducks and, and a little bit of other stuff. Let's say that my farm was a 40-acre farm, and I was doing pastured ducks and pastured chickens and pastured pork. Um, I would not have three companies to do that. I would have one company, which would be Spearco Farms, and that would be the agricultural entity that would exist as uh, an ink or... Uh, as an LLC, depending on what I sat down and discussed with my tax attorney and my CPA. That's how I would make the decision of what what entity for that to be. But it would be a company, okay? Spirico Farms, this is where you get into multiple companies and asset protection. Let's say on a 40-acre farm. Okay, I don't want Spirico Farms to be the landholder. What I'll do to protect my assets is I might create Spirico Land Holdings, LLP, Limited Liability Partnership. And I would lease the rights to farm the farm to myself 
from one intercompany lease. So Spirico Farms would lease from Spirico property the, 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 the land rights, maybe a dollar an acre. Poking them out, maybe a higher. Again, I'm gonna have this conversation with my tax attorney, my CPA, not Jack Spirico. Okay. The reason being, if the farm entity gets into financial troubles, the land is not owned by the farm. The farm's assets are pigs and chickens and ducks and some fencing. The farm's also now portable. So if my model proves out. So if I make my farm the land and I realize that down the road there's a piece of vacant land a guy wants to lease and now I go in and lease his land under the company that owns my land, everything's in it, it gets very murky. What's what? Who's who? And if I piss him off and he decides to sue me, right, he has a contract not with Jack Spirico but Spirico Farms. Spirko agriculture, Spirko farm products, whatever. Okay, By having that, he has to sue that legal entity. He has to now get through what's called the corporate veil, which can be done to come after me personally. But then there's another layer that has to be pierced back through to get to the property, because I don't own the property. Spirko Limited Liability Land Partnerships owns the property. So this type of thinking is more about asset protection than it is about creating individual companies for the products. Because every time you create another company, you create more accounting, you create more record-keeping, you create more work. But in this case, all, most of that is held in Spirico Farms. The land-holding business, right, it doesn't have to do much. There's not a lot of transactions there. There's not a lot of money going on. It just holds the land. It exists for the purposes of holding the land. This also allows me to do something constructive at times. Maybe I decide I want to sell the property, but I don't sell the property now. I sell the company. The person buys the company and acquires the company's assets in the purchase of the company. Got it? Why would you want to do that? It depends. You talk to your tax attorney and your CPA. Right? But that allows to transfer land without transferring land selling the company. Now, what might happen, for instance, is a landowner, as he gets older and decides he doesn't want to maintain the land anymore, if he, if he gave the land to his kids, right, you got all kinds of inheritance and pre-inheritance and death taxes and all kinds of murky stuff there. But if I just have Spirico Land LLP, And one of the people that is an owner in that corporation is my son. Okay, <laughs> He's already an owner in the corporation. So before I die, I can just sell my piece of the company for peanuts to him. He bought it, didn't inherit it. Does it always work? No, but it can. It depends. Tax attorney, CPA. That's how you make these decisions. Now, there's another reason for multiple companies in a farm or any other occupation. Let's say I had some people talking to me, and they said, I want to bring a product to market. And I said, what is it? And they told me, I thought, I can work with you on that. I want to bring that product to market, too. And these two other individuals and I decide we want to take this product to market as a commercial enterprise. And they want ownership in it. Well, do you think I want to give them ownership in the Survival Podcast? 
what have they done to warrant equity in my my successful business that's already you know making a, a living? If, if my little farm was bigger, if I was running two thousand ducks instead of a hundred ducks, and we were you know making sixty seventy thousand dollars off of our ducks, even in gross sales, so let's say we're making thirty thousand in profit or something like that, and, and it was going to be an agricultural product, it had something to do with ducks. Why would they? Why would I give them equity in that business? And if and if if the agreement is we're better off doing this as a true team, you're not a contractor, you're a partner. We're all partners in this. I get twenty percent, and my job is to market it. And these other two guys get forty and forty, so it's a hundred percent of the shares. And they're going to see to delivering and manufacturing and shipping and everything else. Okay. Now we want that relationship clean. And I don't want anything that those two guys do to jeopardize my property. We, we, we then form a corporation, you know, Farmer ABC Corp or ABC LLC or whatever we're going to do. And again, we have the, the structured discussion with a tax attorney and a CPA, not Jack Spierko, because every situation is different. We form that company. If that company goes bankrupt, that company goes bankrupt. Now, there's still a propensity for creditors to try to get through the corporate veil. It can and does happen, but it's another layer of protection. Now, if I'm smart, right, for asset protection, what I've done is taken Spirico Farms and let Spirico Farms hold my 20% of that company for me, but there's no real property because that's in Spirico Properties. And what this does is it creates an environment where if anybody comes after you to sue you, specifically, this is, if you think you're going to go out and run up a bunch of credit on purpose and then and then just go bankrupt and profit from that bankruptcy, that's where judges are starting to pierce the corporate veil pretty heavily. But if you go through normal operations and my, my ABC farm company fails, these two guys that I bring into the company fail, they don't get it done. And we have to close down operations, and we end up owing some money at the end of it. The assets in that company are what can be liquidated under a bankruptcy. And, and, and even if you came to Spirico Farms, we're not. This is just a piece of. I, I, you got to you got to fight for what you're going to do here. Well, I got a bunch of pigs and chickens. I, I don't. I, there, there's there's no property here. There's no property in this business. In fact, I can make this where this business looks like it's losing money if I have to. Right? You see, now you got to come after that. Well, that's not going to work. Well, you're going to come after me. But I don't own 20% of ABC Corporation. The company I own owns. So you got to go after the company. And again, if this looks like it's done so you can defraud via bankruptcy, judges have no qualms anymore going right after you. But if it's legitimate operations and you can make a legitimate case, it's legitimate operations, it's a lot harder. That's why bankruptcies exist, to protect assets. The other thing is now the income that's subject to distribution between the three of us is very clear. It all exists in this company. If the money doesn't run through this company, you're not entitled to it. And if they go off and destroy the brand of ABC Farms, okay, at least they haven't destroyed the, the, the brand of Spearco Farms. Got it? So that's why you set up these types of arrangements. It's an asset protection. It's, it's creating levels of defense between yourself and your business activities, which is what the big boys do. But the biggest reason for it is to clearly delineate what is and is not revenue for a specific source. So there's no way I would do that 
for chickens, pigs, and microgreens. That would be a bad idea. But if somebody comes in with a product idea and they want to be a element partner on my farm, at, you know, some kind of a, like they come in and say, well, I want to, uh, I want to uh, do something with this back uh, 20 acres a year that you're not doing anything with. And I say, yeah. And I say, well, you can lease it. And I say, well, I want to have a more, you know, kind of a, a, a more of a, a true partnership here. And, and we come to an agreement. Well, we might set a corporation up to do that business. That provides them a level of protection, me a level of protection, my other assets a level of protection, their other assets a level of protection, and a clear bucket that determines is this expense a shared expense? Is this income shared income? So I hope that makes sense. But every time I get these questions, tax attorney, CPA, not one or the other, both. And I think on that note today, we'll go ahead and wrap up. Uh, I want to just real quickly mention the, uh, the, the mining spill in Colorado. A lot of people are jumping on the back of the government because, of course, the EPA is the, the, the entity that spilled the toxins into the river, the Animus River, uh, which flows into a lot of other watersheds and is full of toxic heavy metals and things like that. And it is a mess, and the EPA did it. But as much as I love to jump on the government, let's be congruent here, and the EPA didn't create the problem. The EPA tried to deal with the problem that a company left behind. Now, if you or I did anything close to what that company did, we'd probably be under the jail right now. And if a private company was hired to do the work the EPA was doing and caused this disaster, which is, it, it, we're still, I, I'm not going deep into this one today because we don't even really know how bad this is yet. But the latest reports are 3 million gallons uh, of toxic ick dumped into this, uh, in, into this river system. Um, so, I'm not comfortable commenting on this one too deep yet today or beating the government up too much or anybody else for it too much because uh, I don't have enough information yet to know what the long-term implications are here. I do think it could be worse than the implications of the, the oil spill in, in the Gulf. It could be not as bad. I'm not sure. The reason I think it could be worse is there's not as much water for the, the, the stuff to, to be diluted by. That's a quadrillion, kabillion, gazillion, quad million, million, words of Dr. Evil, gazillion gallons of water in the Gulf of Mexico, connected to more than that in all the oceans in the world. And oil is an organic compound, believe it or not. It breaks down faster than most people realize, especially once it's into something like salt water and, and getting hit with oxygen and UV light and things like that. I mean, just look at what happens to a tire, which is made out of petroleum when it sits in the sun for, you know, 10 years which is a far more stable form of petroleum than oil. Um, think about how many ships were sunk in World War II. Right? I mean, there's been a lot of oil dumped in the ocean for a long time, natural vents, etc., and somehow the ocean recovers. This is mostly heavy metals, which means a lot of settling out. It doesn't go all the way downriver. Um, if you look at the pictures, it's just awful, just yellow-orange. And this is a river system. There's a lot less total volume here, and these are not compounds that break down and go away. I mean, the hope is they eventually wash out into the ocean, see? Yeah. Uh, but I will tell you this. Regardless of my comments mitigating the government's culpability in this, it will get less media hullabaloo than Deepwater Horizon, the, the oil spill in the, in the Gulf, because you had a convenient, big, evil corporation to beat up on there, and of course the media doesn't want to beat up on the Environmental Protection Agency and the current president, which is kind of what they're left holding the bag to do. And I would also like to point out the irony one more time that 
if you were hired, you ran a company, ABC Environmental Inc., and EPA gave you the task of doing the job they were doing and paid you to do it, and you made this mistake, man, oh my God, would they have at you. I don't think anybody will suffer any consequences whatsoever for this. Maybe they'll roll out a fall boy or two, but in the end, the government's rules apparently do not apply to the government. The big lesson here, prep. And keep prepping. Because this kind of thing can happen anywhere. This wasn't something anybody was expecting to happen anytime soon. And I have dozens of people emailing me in the last week wondering what to do about water supplies. God, I hate to be an I told you so, but really... This is not the time to try to figure out what to do. Yesterday was. The day before yesterday was, right? And when I say yesterday, I mean like last month, last year. You know, have water stored up, what have you. Because it's saying, you know, people are saying it's getting hard to find bottled water now. A very dry part of the country. Um, if you're in this position now, I, I mean, you, you have to find a, a resource for your water until, until the problem goes away. And, and this is just a heads up to everybody to be prepared because... Don't think this only happens in Colorado where old gold mines are. Something very similar to this ha happened in West Virginia. Kevin Keegan, one of the partners at Permethos, told me about it. It was several months of people not being able to use the water supply that they had always used. Uh, I think it was the, the whatever the river is that runs right through Charleston. It might be the Charleston River. I don't know. Where some company somewhere dumped a bunch of crap in the river by accident. Uh, of course, that was the easy one to beat up on in the local media. But, again, this one, the... The watchdogs, the protectors, the government who was here to help us, helped us by dumping all this crap in the river system. I don't know what is going to come from this. What I do know is there's over 400 mines that may not be as bad as this one, but have this type of a problem that are abandoned in Colorado and something needs to be done about them. And hopefully we come up with a template about how not to do this again. But remember who we're counting on. We're counting on other people. We're counting on the government. We're counting on the state. That means you better start counting on yourself. You better be prepared. This is just one example of why. Again, with that, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Let me show you a better way